Let's begin tonight in our final meeting of Unlock Revelation. It's gone so fast. I hope that you have been blessed. I have. It's been a real joy to be here. Our final topic tonight is heeding the revelation. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, I want to thank you for everyone that's here tonight. Thank you for putting it on our hearts to come and and finish up this seminar series called Unlock Revelation. Lord, I want to pray that you would bless every person that is here tonight, that has come out once again to hear from the Word of God, to hear from heaven what you would have us do. And Lord, we pray that you would guide our hearts and minds, that the Holy Spirit would empower us, enable us, and give us a hunger and a thirst to do your will. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. In other words, friends, what this is telling us that it is not enough just to read the Bible. It's not even enough to understand the Bible, but the true blessing comes when we read, when we understand, and when we actually keep the words that are written in it. In other words, we need to respond to the truth. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, "...but be doers of the word, and not hearers only." deceiving yourself did you know that you can deceive yourself if you think that you could come to a set of meetings like this and just get some oh that's nice knowledge but you don't allow the word of god to penetrate into your heart and to change you then it's of no effect right we have to be doers of the word we have to keep the words that are written in it revelation 19 7 and 8 says the marriage of the lamb has come And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the what? The righteous acts of the saints. And so here is the bride of Christ, and she has made herself ready by being clothed with righteous acts. In other words, practical righteousness in her life. However, earlier in the book of Revelation, there is a warning that is given to one of the churches, and that is the church of Ephesus. And notice what it says in Revelation 2, verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And so if we are going to be among those who are ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb, if we are going to be among those who are categorized and who are identified as those who have righteous acts, who are not just hearers of the Word, but are doers of the Word, if we want to be classified as one of those, then we need to be very careful that we don't leave our first love. Because in drifting away from our first love, we are going to find ourselves heading uh, straight into adultery. Revelations chapter 17, verse 1 and 2 talks about adultery and that apostate church right it says i will show you the great harlot with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication 
And so here we see a picture in contrast to the bride of Christ. Here we see that there are some people, and even though they claim to be Christians, and that's why it's represented as a woman, right? Because a woman is a church, but this is an apostate church. And there are going to be some people who claim to be Christians, but rather than responding to the Word of God, they have committed fornication with the kings of the earth. They have identified themselves with the practices of the world and not with the righteous acts of the saints. James chapter 4, verse 4 says it this way, You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, friendship with the world is likened to spiritual adultery. It is likened to leaving Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says it this way, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Bible is very clear that we need to be cautious that we are responding to the Word of God and not allowing ourselves to become molded into the practices of the world. In contrast to this, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.17, come out from among them and be separate. In other words, God is calling us to be different than the rest of the world. And Jesus warned of this when He said in John 15.18 and 19, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, let me ask you a question tonight. Does the world hate you? There was intended to be a stark difference between God's people and the rest of the world. But that doesn't happen merely by thinking differently from the world because you can keep your thoughts to yourself. It only happens if we are living differently from the world in our day-to-day lives. And this is what the book of Revelation is saying. It's not enough to read the book of Revelation. It's not enough to even understand the book of Revelation. It's only when we read and understand and we do what it's saying to do. If we allow the principles to affect every area and every aspect of our lives, and then we can see that the Word of God is having an effect. Amen? And so tonight, I'm going to go beyond preaching, and I'm going to get right down into the mud where the rubber meets the road. And I think it's time for us to evaluate whether or not we are being true to God's Word, and if the practical areas of our lives are in alignment with the Word of God. It is time to see if God's people are called to be different from the rest of the world. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Judgment implies responsibility and moral choices. And so the call to fear God and give glory to Him is a direct appeal to a world that disregards God and has chosen only to glorify self. To heed the book of Revelation then 
is to examine our own lives to see where we have ignored the voice of God in favor of a worldly culture or opinion. It is a call to get in earnest with God, to come out of the world and to be separate, to begin making choices based on the Bible rather than based on traditions and customs of culture that are not reverent to the Creator. It's a last day call. It's a last warning. Fear God and give glory to Him. Why? Because there's no more time for procrastination. The hour of His judgment has come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and 4 and 5 says, But in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be what? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. This means that this must be talking about people who claim to be Christians. In the last days, a vast number of Christians are going to be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And so let's talk about lovers of pleasure for a moment. We're going to look at three different areas of practical life in which we may find ourselves glorifying self or someone else rather than God. And the first one that we want to talk about is that of our entertainment. We live in a society that needs constant stimulation. Dazzling lights and sounds and emotionally charged storylines. If we're not glued to an exciting drama or godless comedy on TV, then we've got the stereo blasting and the music is just drowning out our thoughts. Or we're buried into a racy novel or something that appeals to our fantasies. If that's not it, then perhaps we're on the internet, right? That's streaming in those exciting news stories or sports scores to keep the excitement going. Friends, could it be that we ourselves are fulfilling the Apostles' prophecy of the last day church where it says that people would be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the what? The simplicity that is in Christ. Now, if you don't take anything else away from tonight's meeting, remember this verse of Scripture. Because I'm going to be looking at three different practical areas of the Christian life tonight, and the key to understanding the will of God in every one of them is found in this word, simplicity. The devil knows that if he is going to deceive us, that he's going to have to do it through our senses. Sight, sound, touch, and taste. These are the only avenues into the soul. And, and so is it any wonder that he seeks to stuff as much stimulation as possible through these avenues so that God is drowned out and that we gain a love for pleasure rather than a love for God. But let me give you a principle to guard your hearts from the devil's deceptions. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says it this way. 
Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And so how should we choose our entertainment? Well, first of all, it said whatever things are true, right? We have to ask ourselves, is it true? The Bible says that we shouldn't be spending our time on fiction, but rather on reality. We shouldn't be dwelling on fictional characters and focusing on their lives, but we should be getting off of the couch and living our own lives. Amen? God has a plan for your life and mine, and it doesn't include countless hours wasted in fictional entertainment that could be spent helping real people with real problems. And so we have to ask ourselves, is it true? And then we have to ask ourselves, is it pure? Anything containing sexually suggestive words or scenes, anything belittling the sanctity of marriage, or sanctioning fornication and adultery does not fit the biblical rule for entertainment. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. He's going to go on and he's going to give 17 sins or 17 works of the flesh. And these are the first four And then he goes on in verse 21 to say, of which I tell you beforehand that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now what is significant about those 17 specific works of the flesh that Paul lists is those first four have to do with moral impurity. They all pertain to sexual sins. And so the Bible says that when it comes to entertainment, that it should be true, it should be pure, and then we have to ask, is it noble? Does it appeal to the unselfish character that we are wanting to develop in ourselves, in our hearts? Or is it full of sarcasm and disrespectful speech? Does it reveal a lack of self-control or selfish ambition? If so, then it isn't noble And the Bible says not to choose to allow those things to come into our thoughts. And so is it true? Is it pure? Is it noble? And then it said, is it lovely? Does it appeal to the sense of Christian simplicity and beauty? Or does it contain revenge and anger? Arguments and fighting? Dark and sinister plotting? Or even violence and death? Now, let me give you one more principle here. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's going to be page 101 in that seminar Bible, Exodus 33, and what we have here is a communication that is going on between God and Moses, and notice what Moses says to the Lord in verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said, 
Please show me your what? Your glory. That's right. Now, notice how the Lord answers. He says, I will make my goodness pass before you. Now, I want to make a point here. The Bible, when it speaks about God's glory, is speaking about His goodness. It is speaking about His character. And if you notice a few verses later there, that God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and He passes by him and He proclaims His name. His name is His character. It is His goodness. And so when Moses asks to see God's glory, God shows him His goodness. The point here is that when the passage says that by beholding we become changed, we're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about beholding God and His Word. We're beholding the goodness of God. And as we behold that, what happens to us? We are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. In other words, in growth from one stage of character development to the next, we become more and more like Christ. The goodness of God is then reflected in us. But the opposite is also true. If we are beholding things that are not true, that are not pure, that are not noble, that are not lovely, then we are going to remain just as selfish and proud and stubborn and mean as we've always been, and we will reflect the world rather than Jesus Christ. Now, what does Revelation 14 say that we should do in the light of the judgment hour? Fear God and give glory to Him, right? So what we behold in terms of entertainment has everything to do with whether or not we are able to bring glory to God and whether or not we are able to be changed into His image. And so after applying these principles, you may choose just never to go to the theaters again, right? I don't think that the modern movies have anything close to these guidelines and and other than keeping up with the news or or maybe a a select program i don't see any merit in watching tv at all right it simply is full of things that aren't true aren't pure aren't noble and aren't lovely and if you can find some broadcasting where it does cover those things where it is pure and true and lovely and noble, then good. You want to watch those things because it helps develop that character of Christ. But I'll just tell you that most of it doesn't. Amen? In fact, the same is true even of our music. You know, God calls music a good thing. That we should sing spiritual songs. That we should make melody in our hearts. But not everything that is labeled Christian music is actually Christian, right? The Bible doesn't say that we should make rhythm in our hearts to the Lord. And a lot of music that's even labeled Christian music is just drowning out with abundant noise the melody. And the melody is being drowned out by the beat of the rhythm. You see, the whole point is that rhythm is not designed to appeal to the mind. It's designed to appeal to the body. And that's why most rock stars 
will tell you that rock music is for the body. And it is sexually implicit because it appeals to the body and not to the mind. And I believe that we need to think about what we're doing and make wise choices based on Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Whether or not to allow those things to come into our senses. Are they lovely? Are they pure? Are they noble? And so when it comes to Christian entertainment, remember that simple word, simplicity. Now, I want to show you something else here. What does it mean to glorify God? I want to show you a couple of verses here that might reveal some things to us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? And glorify your Father in heaven. Now, let me show you another one. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's going to be page 1391 in that seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Peter says to us, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation." In other words, by seeing your godly conduct and by your good works, they will glorify God. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. Let your Christianity be seen. Let the difference between your brand of life and that of the world be different so that you can glorify God. And how do we glorify God? In the day-to-day things of our lives that people can see. And we're going to talk about how we can glorify Him in our spare time. Now let's see if the Bible says anything about giving glory to God in how we care for our physical health. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. And so when the call goes out to give glory to God before He comes, will that include our health? You bet. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's not enough to glorify God in our spiritual lives, but God is calling upon us to give glory to Him in our bodies as well. 3 John chapter 1, verse 2, the Apostle says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, 
just as your soul prospers. It's not just your spiritual health that John wants to have prosper, but it is your physical health as well. And so, is health a matter of chance or is it a matter of choice? I'd like you to notice something that the Lord said to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. He said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Notice what Psalm 105 verse 37 says. There was not one feeble person among their tribes. This is while they were in the wilderness wandering, right? Praise the Lord for that. Now, Loma Linda University out of Loma Linda, California did a magnificent study on health and disease in the ancient world. And in this research that they did, they conducted some autopsies of literally thousands of Egyptian mummies. And remember what the text said? I will not put on you any of the diseases that were of the who? Of the Egyptians, right? And so when they did these autopsies on all of these Egyptian mummies, uh, guess what kind of diseases that they found among the Egyptians? Heart disease, cancer, arthritis, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, rheumatism, sexually transmitted diseases. All of the same diseases that we have today. And why do we have these? Because we are not of the same mindset that the children of Israel were at the time that God promised not to put those diseases on them. They are lifestyle diseases. In other words, preventable diseases based on the foods and the drinks that we choose and the amount of exercise and water that we get. If we are going to glorify God in our bodies the way the Apostle Paul says that we are to do, then we have to think about the things that we are putting into our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, those who practice drunkenness. In other words, it's not just that full-blown alcoholic, but anyone who practices drinking of alcohol. Those who get into those things, it says, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There are some studies that show that 40% of the people who use alcohol end up developing serious drinking problems. Now, I have a question for you. What if your dog bit two out of every five guests? What would you say? That's a good dog, right? Yeah, he's better than 50%. Right, friends, alcohol use 
increases the risk of a number of diseases related to the liver, esophagus, stomach, and pancreas. It can cause memory loss, hypertension, heart problems, and especially damaging during pregnancy. It impairs judgment and leads to immoral behavior, such as drinking and driving under the influence, causing the death of thousands and thousands of innocent people, or simply leading to premature pregnancy. 40% of all incidents that are involving aggression are alcohol-related. And then 13% of all employees who call in sick are calling in because of a hangover. Friends, I just have a hard time understanding how some Christians could say that it's okay as long as you do it in moderation. Alcohol is too deceptive and too damaging to be tinkered with. And Christians ought to abstain from alcohol. Now, some people wonder, well, what about that story in John chapter 2 of where Jesus turned the water into wine, right? But notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 65. Verse 8, as the new wine is found in the cluster. Where is that? That's in the grape itself, right? It's not talking about alcoholic wine, but it is talking about that pure, unfermented juice of the grape. And that's also referred to in the Bible as wine. The problem is the English language, right? And we have to specify, is it talking about the new wine or the old wine? And so we need to be careful when we start assuming that wine that's being talked about in John chapter 2 was alcoholic. I think God is pretty clear on how He feels about what alcohol will do to a person, and He's not going to be creating or producing alcohol. It was the pure juice that Jesus had made. But why would a Christian who is seeking to give glory to God in everything, why would you want to play with fire? And speaking of fire, how about this kind? This guy looks kind of cool, doesn't he? But one day, he might not look so cool. Now, I don't want to waste your time by telling you things that you already know, but let me give you a rule to go by when it comes to any substance that's being sold for any type of consumption. If it isn't for medical purposes and it is mind-altering and physically addictive, Christians who claim by their profession to believe in the importance of temperance or self-control shouldn't do it. Anything that is mind-altering or addictive or our rules shouldn't be moderation, it should be abstinence. Amen? There is no reason for a Christian to fall into the same traps as the rest of the world. There should be a difference. We should not need artificial stimulation like the world does. Remember the Bible rule to govern your day-to-day life as a Christian. Simplicity. And I believe that God is calling on us to be different than the rest of the world even when it means doing something different or that is not popular, such as caffeine. Our body is the temple of the Lord. Our hearts and our minds 
are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? And should we be taking mind-altering and addictive substances into our body? I don't care how many conflicting studies that there are, the facts are clear that caffeinated beverages are mind-altering and addictive. And God does not want us to toy with something that could gain the mastery over our will. Friends, we need to steer clear of anything that is physically addictive. Now, if you are already addicted to alcohol or caffeine or, or any other substance, that means that you cannot imagine your life without those things, right? Friends, thousands and thousands of people have gained the victory over those things with the help of Christ. When it comes to what we take into our bodies, our guiding principle should be simplicity. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. I want to show you another principle that Jesus lays out here. It's going to be page 1134 in that seminar Bible. Matthew chapter 19. And I'd like you to notice what it says starting in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to Him, testing Him and saying to Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And He answered and said to them, Have you not read that He who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has put together let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Jesus here is describing that marriage is sacred. He points back to what as the ideal for the Christian? Back to creation, right? Back to the beginning. He says, because of the hardness of your hearts. But in the beginning, in God's perfect plan, it was not so. Jesus points back to the beginning to describe the will of God for Christians. There in the garden, before sin entered in, we find the institution of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, is that still the will of God for Christians today? Absolutely. And as we look into the story of creation and we discover the Sabbath, this is still the will of God for the Christian today. And something that I think is very curious is the original diet that God gave for mankind, right? It was a vegetarian diet. It was initially nuts and berries and fruit, right? But then after the fall of man, vegetables were added. And I think that the vegetables were added because God knew that we were going to need the phytochemicals in the vegetables to fight off the diseases that were going to come as a result of sin. Now, for this and many scientific reasons, I personally am a vegetarian. And you may find that many, many, but not all, 
Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians also. Based on the biblical teaching that we are to care for our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are to abstain from addictive substances and try to eat the healthiest that we can. And as a result, Seventh-day Adventists have been the subject of many studies and it has showed that they have clearly a longer lifespan and a better quality of life. Now, you may not agree that vegetarian diet is best, but don't worry, you'll come around. right? Because guess what? It says that in the new earth, we're going to all be vegetarians. Right? Because the Bible says that when God creates the new world, the new heaven and the earth, that there's going to be no more death. That means no more animals being killed and eaten, right? So when paradise lost is paradise restored, it is going to be an eternity full of Sabbath-keeping vegetarians. And so, don't look at me so funny when I say I'm a vegetarian, right? The key, again, to God's plan for our health is simplicity. In most cases, the closer you come to the form in which God gave it, the healthier it is for you. There is so much food today that is over-processed. And what happens to it? The complex carbohydrates become simple carbohydrates and all of the nutrition is gone. And that is exactly what has happened in the Western diet. We eat white noodles, white bread, white sugar, white rice. Everything is processed. And it's put in a box and, and it's designed that way so you can cook it in 90 seconds, right? You have to get a magnifying glass to, to read all of the chemicals that are in there that are there so that that food can set on the shelf not for a week or a month, but for years. You know, if you take a piece of fruit and you set it on your counter, what happens in just a few days? It goes bad. But you take that box that can sit there for five years, right? There's a reason for that. Because there are chemicals that are put in there to help preserve that. We need more whole foods. Fresh foods. Foods that can be digested well and used for energy and for fighting disease. Instead of taking pills and vitamins and minerals that are usually too concentrated for our bodies to even absorb, we need to eat more foods that God has designed for us to eat. Amen? But what about this meat thing? When did we start eating meat? In Genesis chapter 7, the Bible says that Noah was asked to bring two of every animal into the ark. Is that what it says? Let me show it to you. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis 7 is going to be on probably page 7. And notice what it says in verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you how many? Seven 
each of every clean animal, a male and his female, to each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also, seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So let me ask you the question, why seven pairs of every clean animal? Well, there's a reason for that. And that's because after the flood, all of the vegetation was destroyed, right? And so God provided more clean animals for Noah and his family to eat after the flood. Now, what's interesting about this is that the oldest man who lived and died on the earth was Methuselah. And the Bible says that Methuselah lived... 969 years and he died. How about that? Can you imagine living that long? Right? Can you imagine how brilliant the people were back then? You know, evolution likes to describe them as being dumb or imbeciles, right? But those who were a part of God's original plan and lived that many years would have been full of wisdom. I'd like you to note what happens after Methuselah though the span of their lives decreases rapidly. And as these are showing the lifespan in decreasing height of the people on the slide. Now, there are various factors that I think that contributed to this decline in lifespan. But I wonder if it was a change in man's diet of eating meat that contributed to that decrease in life. Now, let me ask you some questions here. What are carnivores? Carnivores are meat eaters, right? And then those that are uh, plant-based eaters, what are those called? Herbivores, that's right. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about some of the differences in the characteristics between carnivores and herbivores, but let me just stir your mind here for a moment. Carnivores, what do they do when they get really hot? They pant, that's right, like your dog, right? But then your horse, on the other hand, that is a herbivore, what does it do when it gets really hot? It sweats, right? Now, carnivores have long, sharp teeth for tearing meat, right? But how about herbivores? Short, flat teeth for grinding and chewing, right? Now, a carnivore also has an acidic pH balance in its body, but a herbivore is more alkaline. And I don't know if you've ever recognized this before, but the bowel of a carnivore is short and smooth. But the bowel of a herbivore is long and ribbed. So, if your dog, who is a carnivore, eats a quarter pounder with cheese, he's going to extract that in just a few hours, right? He would just gulp it down, hardly chew it, and in a couple hours... Whatever isn't processed through the body is going to be 
coming out in the lawn, right? But if you eat a quarter pounder, you people who sweat, who have flat teeth for grinding and chewing, you people who have an alkaline balance, you people who have long ribbed bowels, you eat that same quarter pounder, it could take a couple of days for it to come out. Right? And, and there's a problem with that. Because it's in your body for so long that it consequently introduces toxins into your body and that increases the risk of cancer and many other diseases. Friends, we are not intended, our bodies were not intended, not built to be meat-eating bodies. I just want you to think about that. Now, in light of that, though, God did allow man to eat certain meats. Now, there are some people here who you're eating meat, but you're thinking about becoming a vegetarian, and that's a good thing. I'll just tell you that when my wife and I uh, saw this truth from the Word of God, she went straight, not to vegetarian, but straight to vegan. Right? And she's done very well on that. Me, on the other hand, it took me about three years before I completely went over to the vegetarian lifestyle. But what I would recommend to you at the least is start introducing things into your meals that are going to help you get to more of a plant-based diet. But then, one of the things besides addictive substances that the Bible is clear on that we should be totally abstaining from is what the Bible calls unclean meats. Now, I'd like to show this to you. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. It's going to be page 122. And I'd like you to notice Leviticus 11, what it says, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcass you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the water, whatever is in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water... Or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you, and you shall not eat their flesh. But you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. And then it goes on in verse 13 on and starts talking about the birds, and we'll get to that in a little bit. 
But I want you to notice here that there are many people today that say, well, those are Jewish guidelines, right? Those were only for the Jews and they're no longer valid. But I don't believe that that is true. Because notice that it didn't start with Abraham. It didn't start with the father of the Jews. But who did it start with? With Noah. God made a distinction between clean and unclean meats long before there was ever a Jew. Furthermore, I don't think that the death of Christ was to clean unclean animals, right? It was to clean us from our sins that Christ died. It's totally an arbitrary thing to say that somehow through the death of Christ that unclean animals are mysteriously and magically made clean. God made them unclean for a reason. They are the scavengers of the earth. They eat just about anything and that's why they're unclean to us. Animals like pigs, which means pepperoni, sausage, bacon, ham, right? That's what the Bible says. It says that it is unclean to you and God even calls it an abomination. I'm going to read to you a verse from Isaiah 66 starting in verse 15. It says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. It's talking about the second coming of Christ, right? It says, For by fire and by His sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the earth shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. The Lord likens the eating of pig to an abomination to His people. In fact, during uh, World War II, there were many American pilots who were being shot down over the Pacific. And some of them were being rescued, but they were very, very sick. And so they did some testing on them. And they decided to hire a man by the name of Bruce Halstead, a marine biologist, to create a manual for the American fighter pilots so that they would know what to eat in case they were shot down. The interesting thing about this is that he creates this great big manual for the military, but then the last thing he says is, but if it has scales and fins, it's okay to eat it. If you can just remember that, you'll be okay. Right? In other words, if you just eat those with fins and scales, and you don't eat crab, lobster, crayfish, crawdads, shrimp, oysters, clams, don't eat those things. Why? Because they're bottom feeders. All of the toxins in the water sink down to the bottom and all of those are on the bottom and they're taking in all of that toxicity and when you eat it, you're taking that into your body. 
that high level of toxicity exists in those bottom feeders. And that's why God says don't eat them. Same is true for catfish, right? Taking those things off of the bottom. Notice what Prevention Magazine says. Shellfish are dirty and dangerous. And now what about the birds of the air? Deuteronomy 14.11 says, All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. And then it gives us a list of unclean birds. The vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon. You, you see any reason why you wouldn't want to eat any of these? That buzzard and that vulture, they're, they're eating on dead carcasses, right? That are rotting and have all kinds of diseases in them. The raven, the ostrich, the owl, the stork, the heron, the bat. And so when you go home tonight, no bat sandwiches for a snack. Right? Now, in addition to the restriction on clean and unclean meats, God gives His restriction, which I believe is still important to those who do choose to eat meat, He says in Leviticus 3.17, this shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. There's a reason for that. Because all of the diseases in the animal are carried in the blood and are stored up in the fat. Now let me give you one more practical area in which we should give glory to God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, "...having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation." People are watching you, right? And what are they observing in you and on you? And is it glorifying God? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said it this way, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so the Apostle Paul says that we are to glorify God in our bodies. And Peter and Jesus both say that we are to give glory to God by what people see about us. So then could it be that what people see on our bodies either gives glory to God or gives glory to ourselves. And so, for my last little bit of meddling here, I want to talk about what the Bible says about how a Christian should dress in light of Revelation's call to give glory to God. And I'm going to show you things from the Bible But I just want to say this to you. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable no matter what you're wearing right now. This is study time. Amen? We can work on implementing this when you leave here tonight. Fair enough? All right. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 and 10 says, I desire that the women adorn themselves in what? Modest apparel. Friends, Christians should dress differently than the rest of the world. I mean, it's bad enough that we see men and especially women wearing 
everything that's so tight and so low cut that it really leaves nothing to the imagination. But now, they're even trying to get the kids to dress that way. Right? Take a look at the hot styles in the junior department at the stores. You'll quickly find out that that it's even down into the small children. But Christians have become so desensitized by this issue that we often see no problem with clothes that are so tight that they're cutting off circulation. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but it used to be that the news anchors would be behind a desk, right? But now where are they? They've brought them out from behind there and they put them in low, shortcut skirts, right? Leaving almost nothing to the imagination. The key here is according to the Bible, God is calling us to dress in modest apparel. Now notice what this goes on to say. With propriety and what? Moderation. I want you to remember that word moderation. Because while it's okay to appear becoming and nice, we have to realize that God has set limits. Right? While it's okay to be of good quality, there are some things that cross the line of moderation that are opposing the principles of modest Christian dress. And notice what Paul specifically speaks of as crossing the line of moderation. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, in the, in the Middle East, this braided hair, what it's talking about is that many times they would weave into the braids of the hair ornaments and uh, gold and those things that was commonly practiced. And I believe that's what it's referring to here, not a simple braid of the hair. But it's talking about an elaborate hairstyle. Uh, and I don't know all the terms of these ladies, forgive me, but frosting and those kinds of things. I think that's what it's talking about. But the Apostle is specifically stating here that the wearing of gold or pearls or costly clothing crosses the line of moderation when it comes to Christian dress. In other words, the, the Apostle saw the wearing of jewelry as incompatible with the Christian principle of modesty. Let me show it to you again. He says, I desire women to adorn themselves in modest apparel, not with the braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. And notice what he goes on to say. But which is proper for women professing godliness with what? with good works. And so the Apostle is saying to adorn ourselves not with jewelry, not on the outside to adorn ourselves, but to adorn ourselves on the inside with good works. Rather than attracting people to ourselves, we are to be attracting them to Christ. Amen? Paul here is making a contrast. And I want you to see it. Either we draw attention to ourselves by our external adornment and our jewelry, or we draw attention to Christ by our works, 
our inward adornment, that love and kindness, right? The two are drawn in contrast to each other as incompatible with one another. And notice the Apostle Peter here, he picks up on the same thing. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of the wearing of gold or of the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a what? A meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God as of great price. Again, we see the Bible telling us to let our adornment not be outward, attracting others to ourselves, but rather to let it be an inward attraction of a Christ-like character that attracts people to God rather than to ourselves. Amen? The two are incompatible with one another. And notice the point that the Apostle makes here at the end. He says, a meek and quiet spirit. This is a Christ-like character that in the sight of God is of great price. God is not impressed with outward adornment. He is impressed with the inward adorning of that meek and quiet spirit. You remember what we read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, where we saw that woman, where it says that there was a sign that appeared in heaven a woman with the sun and the moon under her feet and a garland of 12 stars on her head, we identified this woman as the pure church, didn't we? And it began with the apostles and it's carried down through the dark ages and she is clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars. In other words, all of the natural light of God. The Bible says the sun and the moon and the stars. And what is that called? The heavens, right? We saw this the other night. Remember Psalm 19, verse 1? The heavens, or the church, the pure church, declares the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. So we see here this pure church represented in Revelation as having true internal goodness. The church that reflects the goodness of God and causes people to glorify Him. And then we contrast that with the woman in Revelation 17. Turn there with me. Revelation 17. Let's look at this other woman, this apostate church, and let's notice what it says about her. Revelation 17, verses 1-4. through Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemies, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in what? purple and scarlet and adored with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Here again we see this contrast that both Paul and Peter made. We see it now in Revelation, this contrast between this pure Christian church 
that was clothed only with the natural light of the goodness of God. And then we see this other woman who is clothed with all of this artificial jewels that bring glory to herself. And the Bible says that we should avoid the appearance of all evil, right? So I think that we should just avoid the wearing of any jewelry whatsoever. And that includes rings and earrings and brooches and necklaces, whatever it might be. I even worry about tie clips. I have a couple of really nice tie clips, but I don't wear them because I don't want to be a stumbling block to someone else because it could be seen as ornamental, right? Even though it might have a use. And so what I do now is I just take a safety pin and clip it on the back of my shirt, right? Because I want to avoid that appearance. Now, there are some people that say, well, what about that prodigal son? When he returned back home, didn't they put a ring on his finger? Yes, they did. But if you look at Luke chapter 15, I think that this is more than just an ornamental ring, right? If you focus on that parable, you'll see that it's all about restoration. When he comes back home, he receives a coat and sandals and a ring. And that coat is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ. That sandal is symbolic of receiving uh, the restoration of rights. Like, uh, remember when Boaz was given the shoe of the nearest next of kin to show that he was able to redeem and marry Ruth? Right? There was a restoration of rights here. And then the ring was a signet ring, which was a sign of authority. And I don't believe that this is just for ornamental purposes but rather it signified restoration of the family checkbook which he had squandered in leaving. I don't believe that ring was ornamental at all. I believe it had a very specific use. Just like a watch. A watch has a specific use, doesn't it? But we have to be careful because it can become ornamental. If you have a $10 watch, it's probably for a specific use. But if it's a $1,000 watch... It makes a difference, doesn't it? Some people also get confused about the fact that the Old Testament records without comment about certain people who were wearing jewelry. You have Rebecca who paid Abraham's servant with jewelry that she was wearing. You have Saul who wore a bracelet. You have Pharaoh who gave Joseph a golden chain. Daniel was given a golden chain. But you remember that just recording these things in the Bible doesn't mean that God approves or disapproves of those things. It's just a recording of facts. And God doesn't immediately bring reformation of His will in everything. He always reveals things in a progressive way. For instance, God did not punish David and Solomon for having many wives, right? But we learn after that that God desires that it would be one man and one woman, right? And so just because there's a wearing of jewelry in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that God approved of it. It doesn't mean that it's God's will. And yet we do see instances in the Bible where God has shed light on this subject in the Old Testament. 
And for the sake of time, I'm not going to take you there, but you might want to just write these down. Genesis chapter 35, verse 1 through 4, and then Exodus 33, verses 1 through 6. In one case, it's talking about Jacob. In the other case, it's talking about Moses. But in both cases, when it came time for the people to repent and come back to God, God told them, take off all your jewelry. God considers jewelry a sign of rebellion. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16-23. Because the daughters of Zion are what? Haughty, that's proud, and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go. Therefore the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the pendants, the bracelets, the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, the fine linens, the turbans, and the robes. Why did it say that God was going to take all those things away? Because they were haughty, right? Jewelry is a sign of pride to God. But God's church, in contrast, is pictured with all of the beauty of the simplicity and the meekness and the humility of Christ. And you know, Seventh-day Adventists aren't the ones that came up with this. Remember how we talked about all of those churches that were coming out of darkness, but rather than everyone growing in the truth, they planted their stake and they said we're Presbyterians or we're Methodists or we're Lutherans or whatever else it might be? This truth was discovered long before the Seventh-day Adventist church. But most of the world today has gone the way of culture on this point. But it wasn't always that way. Notice what John Wesley's advice to the Methodists was. He said, I exhort you to wear no gold, no pearls, no precious stones, no mere ornaments, though ever so much in fashion. It is true that these are little, very little things. Therefore, they're not worth defending. Therefore, give them up. Let them drop. Throw them away without another word. John Wesley wasn't the only one that said this. Charles Finney, Finney, the Presbyterian and Congregational Evangelist, notice what he said. When a young lady begins to backslide, she will begin to put on ornaments, jewelry, and costly attire. These things are natural indications of the state of the heart. Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist evangelist, said something very similar. If some people had a little more piety, they would not require such a showy dress. If they had a little more godliness to set them off, they would have no need whatever to be always decorating themselves. It would be a good thing, perhaps, if we went back to Wesley's rule to come out from the world in our apparel. You see, the Bible rule of modesty in dress was understood by many in the latter half of the Protestant Reformation. But custom and tradition have again supplanted the Word of God. Now, let me clarify for a minute here. There are some people that believe that we should go back to prairie dresses and, uh, and, and be a century behind. And I'll just tell you that I don't think that we should do that. I'm not saying that at all. And there are some people that say that women shouldn't wear pants. 
right? Because there's that verse in the Bible that talks about how a woman and a man should not dress alike. But I think that women can look very feminine in pants. And if we want to go to that extreme, and I'm not disparaging anyone who believes that, but I would just say if we want to go to that extreme, then we would have a problem with Jesus wearing a robe. Right? Because that's what women wear. So, I think we have to be very careful when we're talking about this. Now, there are some that feel that we should only wear the cheapest clothing. And I'm not saying that either. I think that our clothing should be neat and it should be clean and it should be modest. And not chasing after the latest fad, but representing timeless conservative styles. According to the Bible, tight, revealing, and overpriced clothing and the wearing of jewelry are considered beyond the line of modest apparel according to the Word of God. Remember what we learned the other night. The last day church is called the what? The remnant. It is part of the original bolt of cloth. God's last day people are going to be adorned with the goodness of God, a meek and quiet spirit, rather than jewels and artificial attractions like the apostate church of Revelation 17. God's church is represented as following the Lamb wherever He goes. And if we follow Jesus to the cross and they were casting lots and dividing His clothes, there was no jewelry there, right? There was no necklace. And so we need to follow Jesus' example when it comes to our dress. We need to follow His example when it comes to our choices in entertainment and when it comes to our health. Remember the rule that should govern our practical life. Simplicity. Friends, the Bible says that God's people will avoid the corruption of the world. And rather than giving glory to movie stars and worldly entertainers, rather than giving glory to our own corrupted appetites, and rather than giving glory to ourselves, they will fear God and give glory to Him. Why? Because the hour of His judgment has come. I'd like to close tonight by telling you a story about a woman by the name of Lillian. Lillian came to a series of meetings just like this. And she learned so many things in those meetings that just touched her heart. She saw that the Word of God was real. It was alive. It was applicable even down all the way into our day. She saw for the first time in her life that the Bible truly can be understood. But when it came to the night, when this topic was talked about, she began to feel uneasy. And she began to realize that God was calling her to be separate from the world. And so as the message was going on, she began taking those earrings off and taking those rings off and removing that necklace. And when she left that night, the pastor noticed. He said, you took your jewelry off. And she said, yes. God means more to me than these. Brothers and sisters, is that you? Is it the desire of your heart to represent Christ like that pure church 
with all of the natural beauty of God? Or are we going to dress ourselves like that apostate church? The choice is yours. Friends, we've learned a lot of truths here. But are we going to stand for the truth? Are we going to apply those things to our lives and allow God to change us or are we going to just keep going the way we've been going? Friends, the choice is yours. If it's the desire of your heart to represent Christ the way He would have us, let me see your hands. Praise God. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I thank You so much for this Unlock Revelation series that we've had. And Lord, as we close out tonight, I want to lift up every person before You. Lord, do we truly love You enough to give up everything to be right with You? Or Lord, are we going to be swept up in that deception that is coming upon the world? In fact, is already here now. We've already seen how we ourselves have been implicated in the deception. But Lord, You have a work to do tonight. And I pray that You would be able to touch every heart as we leave here. Help us, Lord, to make a stand for You. Give us the power. Give us the strength to come out of the world and be separate. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.